Today, we are starting a new class. So we have moved from how to study the Bible to basic Bible doctrine. There's some seats up here. I know, I know. Uh, to basic Bible doctrine. Um, but I thought we'd kind of, I wanted to um, take some time to kind of just introduce this whole topic before we kind of take each one of these uh, one by one. So here's the opening question, okay? What is theology? Okay, and then I'm going to ask a second question. Why study theology? Okay? So what is theology? Somebody want to give a sh make an attempt at that? The study of God. The study of God, right? So theo, theos, ology, knowledge. I mean, it's the study uh, of God. So why is it important to study theology? And there's multiple answers to this question, by the way. So it's not a trick question. I know sometimes it's so, so obvious, but you know, you know, we're about to engage in this, right? So why, why spend the time doing it? Why is it important? So we know who God is. So we know who God is, right? Oh, why would that be important? <laughs> I think of uh, Jesus' prayer when he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So mm -hmm. life is defined as knowing God. Mm -hmm. I think we study God because he's the, <clears throat> he's the answer to every great question. Okay. Yeah. These are all very good answers, by the way. So. I think it's a form of worship, right? Mm -hmm. Like something that is worthy should be known. And mm -hmm. it's a way we, we say out loud, mm -hmm. you're worth knowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, other thoughts? Well, if you look at like the great conversation, like the great <clears throat> questions that have occupied humanity, and this is not just in ivory towers, but everyone asks the question, what does it mean to be human? What is a good life? What is good, beautiful, and true? Um, and where did we come from? Like, all, none of those, not one of those questions can adequately be answered apart from theology. Mm -hmm. Like, ultimately, yeah. there has to be, there has to be some first cause, mm -hmm. and therefore some source of answer. Mm -hmm. And so to study theology, there's a reason it was called the queen of the sciences. Yeah. It's because to, to know God is to know everything else. Yeah. And you cannot, you can't know biology truly without knowing theology. Yeah. You're going to have a partial knowledge of every other question you're asking. Biology, sociology, psychology, right? Yeah, it, isn't it, uh, I think it's probably Lewis, that it, I don't believe in the sun, not just because I see it in the sky, but by it I see everything, everything else. else. Right, exactly. Yeah, so why, why don't some people take theology seriously? Why might there be some reticence on the part of you know, some Christians to just say, you know, that's, that's not really for me, no creed but Christ, no book the Bible, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, that's all I need to know. Why do people have that instinct? 
to some people at that instant. I think sometimes to talk through proper theology, like to get the, the right answers about God, sometimes it comes with um, disagreements or mm-hmm. um, controversies. Um, yeah. It, even though there is one truth to arrive there and talk about it, sometimes brings that forward and yeah. it doesn't seem, by my experience, <coughs> Sometimes you get into discussions that generate a certain amount of tension because when you're talking about God, people feel very strongly yeah. about God, right? Yeah. It's kind of like people feel very strongly about their parenting, right? So you critique their parenting, you're critiquing them. You critique their theology, you're critiquing them. And so it, there's some relational parallels. That's a good point. Other thoughts? Yeah. I think there can be some some fear and anxiety. Um, I just know that if, if you face every decision upon what you believe about God, it can be scary to question mm-hmm. that you could ever be wrong about mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. God. And so there's a sense in which if I, you know, if I change my mind on this, does that color and change everything else in, in your past? So there's a certain risk that yeah. you take. Is that the first step to heresy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or have I been wrong about this? Mm-hmm. Or this yeah. yeah, good. Well, also, like, we're supposed to have the faith of a child, and children don't, don't understand a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you can just kind of go to that and say, I have, I have faith of a good child, I have a saving faith, and mm-hmm. so I don't need more. Yeah. And I don't want to complicate my childish faith. Yeah. Childlike faith. Yeah. I think also, I think we're just really pragmatic people. Because we want, God seems like, we know he's, he's there, but he's sort of out there. And the question is, how do I take care of my kids and do my job and yeah, uh, and that seems sort of distinct and distant from those practical needs of life. <clears throat> yeah. So how does this benefit us? If you don't see the immediate benefit and the utility of, let's say, a doctrine, then why study it? Other reasons why people might be hesitant? I think it's been made, it's been taught in really boring ways. I mean, there's lots of big words. No pressure. Yeah, other <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a t- it's hard to be interesting about things that are not tangible. It just is. Okay. Right. Lots of definitions. And it's lots the of bar, Dave. Is that, is that tea caffeinated, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, uh, sometimes it's taught like this is good for you, yeah. right? You know, it's biblical. If you're a Christian, you should want this. Otherwise, there's something you know what I'm saying? So sometimes there could be that kind of posture. Um, yeah, one thing I I think about is um, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 where the author of Hebrews says about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. 
And so right there, I mean, he critiques them and says, you need to go back to the basics of theology, the oracles of God, so that you can discern good and evil. And, and it's not just good and evil as far as what you do, but also what you believe, right? Like what you believe, you read the pastoral epistles, what you believe about God is extremely important. Uh, another example would be Galatians chapter 1. Uh, 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and I'll say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So there, there is a sense where um, there's not only a sanctifying element to understanding theology, but also a protective element as well. Does that make sense? Like how do you know something is false if you don't know the truth? Mm -hmm. Right, so th there's a number of reasons why uh, there is worth in studying theology. And when you look at, you know, just some of, there's, there's a bunch of what I call theo theological disciplines, okay? You have biblical theology. I'm going to give you the list first and then explain these. Dogmatic theology, exegetical theology, historical theology, natural theology, pastoral practical theology, systematic <coughs> theology. You might want to, you could maybe add a, philosophical theology to this. I mean, you can keep on going down the list. So we'll kind of start with what each one of these means. So biblical theology is basically the theology of a section of scripture, maybe a time of scripture, or maybe an author of scripture. And so what does Paul teach about grace? Right? That would be called Pauline theology. Um, maybe a, you know, as we go through um, the books of Moses, right? What does Moses teach about the Spirit? Or what does Moses, or, or what does the Bible teach about giving? You know, so the idea, or, or what does the Bible teach about the kingdom? So the idea is you kind of go through the Bible and you try to take maybe a theme of Scripture and you summarize it, okay? That is biblical theology. You have dogmatic theology, and that is when you look at all the creeds, Council of Chalcedon, uh, Council of Nicaea, and you try to discover what is meant by these theological statements that were written by previous generations. Exegetical theology is basically theology derived from a deep dive into the text and the conclusions that you make about any given text. Historical theology is um, maybe talking about what did the early church fathers believe about the spirit? What did the early church fathers believe about uh, salvation? What did the reformers teach about salvation? You know, what do modern theologians teach about salvation, right? So you're looking at a doctrine, but comparing notes from different historical time periods. You have natural theology, like what does nature teach us about things? So you ever heard of the term natural law, right? What are some assumptions we can make about 
uh, God from just looking at the world around us. Pastoral practical theology. You know, if, if you guys are into ACBC certification or training, this is, um, you know, how does the doctrine of sovereignty help somebody with anxiety? You know, how does this doctrine help with depression, right? So there's a very pastoral, practical aim with this. And then you have systematic theology. And so systematic theology is basically arranging biblical doctrines into specific categories, right? So what does, uh, what do we, you know, so you have bibliology, right? The study of the Bible, the doctrine of God, okay, it's also called theology proper, Christ or Christology, spirit, or it's called pneumatology if you want to get fancy, man or anthropology, sin or harmartiology, salvation or soteriology, angels or angelology, that's easy to remember, church or ecclesiology, and then end times or eschatology. And so the idea is you go through the Bible and you, you summarize the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the spirit, the teachings of man. And so even within these, right, there's, there's subcategories. Um, for instance, in angels, you have angels and then you'd have demons. And within demons, you have the topic of demon possession. Okay, end times, that would include the future, judgment, resurrection, uh, heaven, and, and, and hell, right? So all of these have even subcategories, okay? So when you look at, let's say, these doctrines here, biblical, dogmatic, exegetical, historical, natural, pastoral, practical, and systematic, which one is the most important theological discipline. Anybody want to give it a shot? What is the most important theological discipline? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. Okay. This is an important question, though. I, I think I'd start with biblical. You start with biblical, okay. Um, maybe because if, if as I approach scripture properly, mm -hmm. um, with the right posture, with the right tools, mm -hmm. then that allows them, that's going to allow me to, to skillfully pull out the other doctrines. Okay. I like what you had to say. So you start with biblical because it allows you to pull out the others. Okay. I'd say the same, but I reverse it and say exegetical. The foundation to everything else. Okay. Whatever any individual text has meaning, it spread, spreads them to everything else. Okay. Yeah, I was probably conflating the two. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We always agree. Yes. <laughs> In the end. Angie, Yeah. And I'll just kind of give you. I, I think this is this is the most important part, right? Why is that the most important theology, theological discipline? Let's kind of let's blow this out a little bit. What if we were to make, um, let's say, dogmatic decrees the most important part? So I think when, we're, when you're saying most important, maybe another way to ask the question is... Here we go, husband-wife dynamic. <laughs> is which category can correct the errors in all the others? Yeah. 
Does that make sense? Which one can correct the others? Right? And so clearly it would be exegetical, right? If you were to start with, let's say, dogmatic, right, and this is what the creeds say, what happens if the creed is in conflict with the conclusions that you make from exegeting a passage? Yeah, and hopefully they're all kind of interconnecting, like you're using biblical mm -hmm. doctrine to understand how to do your exegesis as you study what, how, how Moses spoke and how Paul spoke. And you're, you're checking, okay, what did the historical doctrines say and why did they reach those conclusions? Like they're helping you give the best exegesis mm -hmm. possible. But in the end, right? Yeah. That's the one that's... Yeah, in the end, this is the one that corrects all others. Okay? Now, when you look at just building out theology, okay, really, the, this would be the building materials. The biblical theology would be more the foundation. Does that make sense? So using these biblical materials, like if you want to know what is the theology of Moses or the theology of Paul, to come to that conclusion to adequately summarize it, like what does Paul say about justification, you would have to go into kind of the biblical foundation, okay? Or what does James say about justification, right? That is also biblical theology. And so you kind of have like the, the foundation of biblical theology is right here, but then the house of systematic theology is built on the foundation of biblical theology, but it utilizes exegetical theology to come to all the conclusions. Okay? Now, the reason why I am bringing all this up is let's say somebody um, starts with dogmatic theology. Or let's say somebody starts with, let's say, <coughs> their understanding of systematic theology. So they master all of this, right? What's the problem with making this the discipline that corrects all others? <clears throat> That's not the true, like, digging into the Bible <coughs> to, like, like exegesis would be, exegetical would be, like, digging, I mean, I mean the, the people who've done systematic theology have done that, but if you're using yeah. that as your first source, then you're not going to see errors mm -hmm. within that, where where there might be errors, and, you know. So like yeah. you would you would say, okay, like this is my understanding of this, you know, based off of mm -hmm. utilizing these methods for systematic, yeah, you know, or other people's, but I got to go, you know. Check that, right? Like yeah, I, I you have to need check to it against study scripture. scripture to make sure it's correct. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> one thing is, if you start here a systematic, you're basically doing dogmatic theology, right? Because you're taking other people's creeds, other people's categories, and you're saying that is how we assess the correctness of all these other disciplines. Does that make sense? So you start with a dogmatic creed that tells you what systematic theology is how it's supposed to be expressed, and then you read your conclusions back into the text. So famously, 
that took place in the Roman Catholic Church, right? Or they had these dogmatic theologies, Roman Catholic dogma that became the um, magisterium that systematized all categories of theology and it basically overrode the text. And then here comes Martin Luther where they rediscover, you know, there was kind of a renaissance where they um, rediscovered the classics and and they started to read the Greek version of the Bible as it was written, not just the Latin translation. And as they started getting to like, these foundational things, they realized that there's some problems with these systematics. And they started to challenge the dogma, and that's kind of what started the Protestant Reformation. Does that make sense? Now that said, there could be a, a tendency to just focus exclusively on the exegetical and then the biblical, and then say systematics don't matter. What would be the problem with that? Is there, is there value in this discipline that we have here? Well, without systematics, we can't talk about topics. Yes. We can't talk about areas of theology. What do we know about angels? What do we know about justification? We can only talk about individual passages. So we can't summarize the Bible message without systematics. Mm-hmm. And then also, if our exegesis, our exegesis of one passage has to be ultimately consistent with the exegesis of other passages. And some systematics help us to evaluate, does this all fit together or not? If it doesn't fit together, maybe we've gotten something wrong, and then it has to push us back to the text anew yeah. to see what we got wrong along the way. Uh, yeah, that's good. Other thoughts? Like, I look at um, the theology of James on justification. He says, you're justified by works, and then Paul says you're justified by faith, faith, right? Can we just sit back and say that, well, you can be justified both ways, right? That's where systematics come into play, where it's like, how do we harmonize these things that seem to be contradictory? And I think a true deep dive into the exegesis of both those passages talk, talk about how they're talking about different things, but there is kind of this, this project of trying to figure out how, if the Bible is the word of God, these things mesh together. Systematics is also a guardrail against our tendency to, to specialize and to only see what we're interested in right at that moment. So like if we're studying Ephesians right now in women's Bible study, I tend to think that all the world's problems are solved by something in Ephesians. And um, that all of you know, all of our answers to all of our theological questions are found in Ephesians. But my systematic theology tells me there's actually more to it than just what I see in Ephesians chapter 4 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so it, I think it's kind of our guardrails against um, extremism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think systematics, it affirms that this is a book written by the Lord who is true and only speaks truth, and so there is consistency there. So a lot of, a lot of this is being able to kind of summarize what is uh, the teaching from him. Yeah. I think one thing that I benefit from is a lot of times in, in systematic, you, it helps you, I think like Joshua was saying, particular topic, really search the scriptures as a whole, right? What is every everything mm -hmm. that's said on this topic? And know kind of the boundaries of the field in a sense, like where does scripture, what does it say, and where is it silent? What does it not say? And so you have like an area 
to talk and discuss and debate about within mm -hmm. to, to come to your your practical yeah. theology and you've got like this is everything that's in scripture about that relates to this topic yeah. so that you're not again stuck in one, one yeah it gives you a fuller picture like what does the bible teach about giving mm -hmm. what does the bible teach about marriage yeah and, and so all of these things really do ha have a place like look at historical theology um it's really interesting to see what people talked about at different ages. Uh, I think even in our own lifetime, right? Like, churches have all been updating their doctrinal statements. Do you know why? Why, why are there new paragraphs added to doctrinal statements? People are now nodding, like, what's the new paragraph that's being added? About gender. About gender and about sexuality and about what is a man, what is a woman, what is marriage, right? So there, there's a historical trend that we are actually seeing before us. Before that, there was a lot of, you know, with postmodernism and all truth is relative, there was a lot of clarification about the doctrine of the Bible. During the Reformation, there's clarification about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, in the early church, they had to explain why we believe in one God and we're an extension of the Hebrew faith, yet with the reality of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And then they would have to explain why all the pagans had to reject all their gods to worship one God, right? So a lot of times historical theology helps us understand the context in which they were asking these questions. Does that make sense? Natural theology is a, um, an interesting field because if we we're going to talk about um, transgenderism to a secular audience, right? Being able to reason it from nature, there might be some utility in that. Um, pastoral practical, I think all of us, like when I talk about marriage, anxiety, depression, all those other things from scripture, I mean, we see the benefit of that. So there, there's a place, I think, for all of these, and they can all be helpful. But the engine that drives it is really exegetical, building on the biblical, and then the systematic. So another thing, like when we look at kind of building this house, you know, here's the, you know, the biblical theology and uh, systematic theology. A lot of it is as we are, and, and we have the, you know, these are the building materials, right, that inform that. Um, there is. Like, when you start putting these things together, like, we know that Jesus Christ is a man. <coughs> we also know that he is God, based off of these pictures, you know, off of, you know, our exegesis, right? So how do you explain that he was a man and that he was God at the same time? Does that make sense? Doing that does require uh, a certain amount of human reasoning, right? How do these things fit together? Or when you look at the apparent contradiction between James and, and Paul, right, on justification, there's a certain amount of, well, what about this? What about this? It can't mean this. It can't mean this. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're, they're, we do use human logic, <coughs> in trying to bring some of these teachings that seem to be contradictory together. 
try to explain them away. Does that make sense? Or why these things overlap. So there is an amount of, there is a certain amount of where you, know, you build primarily with exegesis, but there is some human reasoning that does take place to resolve maybe certain contradictions or show how these things kind of work together. Now, this is one of the, the issues in it. Like, if you were to talk to a Methodist, uh, they have the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know, that talks about how they, you know, you have the Bible, the experience, the Holy Spirit, and logic kind of helps us bring these theological conclusions, but they will use human reasoning and basically inflate that to the point that it compromises the authority of the Bible and exegetical theology. So, I'm trying to think where I'm going to go with this. Okay, so, one thing is knowing, I mean, I guess, what are the, why is human reason necessary for systematic theology, and what are its limitations? Why is it necessary to use human reason when we're trying to put these passages together and try to try to build a systematic theology? Why why can't you get away from human reason? Well, it's what God gave us. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't give us scripture in the form of a textbook with subject headings and answer. You know, like mm -hmm. he he gave us stories and poetry and history and and so to assemble it in any other way is going to require human reason mm -hmm. because that's not the way that the mind of God revealed it to us. Mm -hmm. We're in a different yeah. form. Mm -hmm. For instance, you look at um, why do you believe the Holy Spirit is God? Is there a verse in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit is God in every sense? Okay. The way we kind of construct it, there's a couple of arguments you know, that kind of lead towards that. Number one, there's passages in Isaiah that said the Lord spoke, and then in Acts, the same passage is given, and it says the Holy Spirit spoke. Another one is, who can know the mind of God but God himself, right? If God has, only God is omniscient where he knows all things. And the only way somebody can know the mind of someone who's omniscient is if they're omniscient themselves. So that would be an argument. You have yeah, the Great Commission baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name shared by all three. So you are actually making some logical deductions there. Does that make sense? And so I think you just have to be honest that there is an element of, of, of logic that is involved. <coughs> now, what are the limits of reasoning and human logic? I think first there's depravity. So scripture speaks to the fact that we're <coughs> yep. unable to discern mm -hmm. anything spiritually with a dead heart yep. and mind. Uh -huh. it, there was a... Uh, and so it's a strange contrast knowing that when you're conversing with an unbeliever, you're totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring light and understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Good. Yeah. What else? There's always something that we don't know. Yeah. We are still learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts? that we do know, none of it do we know. The limitation of our own like creatureliness. I mean, we're, we're all created, for example. So, God being uncreated, eternal. I think it's a, it's a logical necessity, mm-hmm. and yet our brains cannot conceive of it because we are created. Mm-hmm. You talk about uh, the triune nature of God. Mm-hmm. I am one person. I am not two persons. I can't even conceive of what that might be. So they're just built-in limitations mm-hmm. that are, are are necessary because I'm a created being, not the creator. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think another one is you have this concept of a of a paradox, right? I mean, what's a paradox? Somebody could Google this, but what is a paradox? It's a self-contradictory claim. It's so true. Did that's you true. Google that? <laughs> I don't need to Google that. <laughs> self-contradictory claim. That, that's true, right? So Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. How do you reconcile that? You, you can't, right? It's a paradox. Now here's the deal with the paradox. There are true paradoxes we're dealing with with revelation, right? Because God said it, even if we can't use reason to put the pieces together, it still is true and we have to accept it as true. Now, here's another question. What's what would be the problem of declaring a paradox too early? Well, you're, I think you're saying when we de- declare a paradox, we're saying this can't be understood, it only has to be accepted, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that's what you mean by declaring something. Declaring it, yeah. Okay. And sometimes it's, um, it's a seemingly contradictory statement that's true in the sense <clears throat> that we know that these two things, there's no possible way for us to understand how they can both mm-hmm. be true. But they are. Yeah. So there, there's no there's no way for us to understand how they're not contradicting one another. So it's like limitations. Of, like in you've told, maybe seen that thing, like the perspective thing. Like I look at it from this angle, and it's a rectangle, mm-hmm. and then I look at it from the top. Oh, it's a circle. It's a can, or whatever. It's like if you have that limited perspective, in a sense, that yeah. non-omniscient. Yeah. You. Yeah, and I think there's some things that might have seemed like paradoxes. But just with further, more careful consideration and study, they're not a paradox. Yeah, and so if we stop short, we might limit our understanding of God in those instances because there's more to be gained out of understanding how they both can be true. Yeah. And I think an early declaration of this is a paradox can be even a form of pride that if I can't understand it, nobody can. Does that make sense? That's a. That's a, that's a form of pride. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is sometimes, you know, how far, how deep, you know, 
maybe there is a paradox, you know, as we kind of go deep into doctrine, and the paradox is really here, and we declare it here. We miss out on a lot of, a lot of refinement and content when we declare something too early as a paradox. What do you think? What are the common ones that you think that we, the church, as people, <sighs> stop too short? Well, I think, um, like maybe with the Trinity, like how deep do you go into? At the end, we all know we're going to hit the paradox wall. Yeah. But how, how deep do we go into it? Uh-huh. And I think, you know, and this is kind of a, and this is the other thing, kind of building towards as well. There's a lot of these paradoxes, like a lot of times this right here, like we know what the scripture teaches, and we could just stop there. Is there room to kind of go to explore here, all right? And I think anytime you look at, um, you know, you have like clear biblical teaching that you cannot get around, you cannot deny, right? Like the resurrection, right? That is clear exegetical teaching. Then you have maybe another category of stuff that by, like penal substitutionary atonement, right? That Jesus was a substitute in our place, paid a penalty for our sin. You can look at biblical theology and derive that from Paul, but you have to pull some text together, right? And so you have like, every doctrine kind of has like, you know, like here, like penal substitutionary atonement, you have, you know, scripture, mixed with a little bit of reason. Right? Where you have scripture with a little bit of reason. And let's say, so we can be pretty certain about this. But then you might have other doctrines that have, you know, a little bit of scripture and a lot of reason. Timing of the rapture, right? How certain should I be about this, right? So I think understanding the mixture of exegesis and reason, your conviction should be in proportion to the exegesis. Because otherwise my conviction is in my own reasoning, yeah. not yeah. in God's word. And I think just you're your teaching and your theology ought to major on the same things that scripture majors on mm-hmm. and minor on the things that scripture Yeah. So, I mean, if you guys want to get into a campfire thing here, you know, as long as you're not, you know, preaching heresy, right? <coughs> that's great. The problem is when you start to be very dogmatic about this. So, part of, part of this whole developing of theology is when should you have a lot of certainty and strengthen what the Bible teaches versus when should you back off and say, mm, I can go either way on it. This is kind of where I am, but I see where people think differently. Does that make sense? So I don't want to turn all of this into jellyfish, right? <laughs> it's good to have a spine, but the spine that we have is based off of the exegetical understanding of what the text says. So like homosexuality, for instance, textually crystal clear. Right? You can't really get around it. Timing of the rapture? No, I, I have my leanings, but I'm not going to declare somebody a heretic for believing something different. 
Does that make sense? So, I mean, the reason why I'm bringing all this up, I think it's, it's important that we understand how we are forming our theology. And as we go about it, um, so that you can even rightly apply it. Yeah. I think it, it gets a little bit difficult because most of us, <clears throat> our, our experience is we start with systematics. Like if you've taught your children a catechism, mm -hmm. you're teaching them both a historical, a historical, a dogmatic, and a systematic theology, not a uh -huh. biblical theology. We don't teach our children how to exegete a text when they're little. Yeah. We might have them memorize it. In fact, we should. Mm -hmm. But you know, when we teach them a, cate a, a catechism, we're teaching them a systematic theology, and they're going to default to the knowledge that they've memorized yeah. before they learn how to reason through it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I think the other thing is just that, like you know, the blogosphere or whatever, the debates are not being held at an exegetical and biblical level for the most part. They're mostly being held at a systematic and dogmatic level. Yeah. Like, you know, in 1647, they came to the end-all, be-all of all knowledge of God, and we need to just always resort back to that, and this is what it tells us systematically, and how dare you contradict that in any way? This creed says this. Yeah. Um, and declaring one another heretics based on that without there being a Bible verse anywhere in it. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are just, um, like, the waves of influence that we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. To just to understand why we tend to resort back to a systematic theology that depends more on reason and yeah. camps, really. And I'll admit to you, like, when I became a Christian, I was given a systematic theology. Like, you guys ever read a gospel tract? Mm -hmm. Right? You know, the four spiritual laws, there's different verses, all summarized under four different headings that explain the plan of salvation and explain the gospel. Right? Anybody else? I mean, when I preach the gospel, I jump from different texts and I give you a systematic understanding of the gospel. And that's really kind of an, an entry point where I tell people what they must believe about those conclusions. Does that make sense? So I think every Christian, if you're honest, it starts with, you know, there's kind of a backfilling here. And... Um, and maybe we ought to just teach exegesis at first, but as Scott brought up, <coughs> without the Holy Spirit, can you even faithfully do that? But it is a really good argument for like one-on-one -on -one Bible reading with someone if you're trying to evangelize them, yeah. or why do we study the Bible instead of books in general here? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a really good argument for that. Yeah. that. We want to build into everyone from the start a sense that the Bible says yeah. it, and that's why we believe it. Yeah, but then you get into, let's say, um, I'm sharing with a Muslim. Yeah, the point of attack is going to be right here, right, and right here. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, I mean, you will have to address that because, or if you talk to a Mormon, they use a lot of the same terms. Mm -hmm. And you have to explain why that actually does not mean what you think it means. So... There is, you know, some of these disciplines do kind of inform each other. Mm -hmm. You know, your systematic theology does inform the Bible as you read it. Does that make sense? But as you read the Bible, that is what should inform your systematic theology. And the, the strongest part is right here. This is kind of the higher ground, right? So... Now, and, and that's why the way we kind of designed this whole class is we started with how to interpret the Bible, right? 
That's the starting point. How do you know that this text means this? But understanding systematic theology, I think one, um, it gives you an idea of the whole counsel of God. It does inform how you read the Bible. Like when you read Christ, you know, what comes into your mind? When you read about God, what comes into your mind? Um, it also protects you from heresy. Does that make sense? Like if you start coming to conclusions that are outside of this, or outside of even this, it tells you, think long and hard about what you're about to do. You know what I'm saying? Go back and check your exegesis to make sure that that's there. Maybe reconsider some of your reasoning, if that's a necessary outflow. Um, but yeah, all, all of this, I mean, I don't mean to overwhelm everybody here, but this is why we can spend eternity in heaven learning about God and never be bored. Because there's just so much to it. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead, Josh. I got two comments here. <laughs> Josh, then. Going back a little bit to the, the, the paradox thing, um, I think it can be challenging sometimes for people who are new believers or still evaluating. They say, oh, it's, it, well, it's, we say it's a paradox, and they're saying, well, it's just a contradiction. And, or we think of a paradox as like a religious sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, I've done some reading, I'm definitely not a scientist, but the highest levels of theor theoretical science, mm -hmm. um, there's deep paradox in how they understand the, the created world based on the evidences that are there. And they don't actually know how they all fit together. So you get higher and higher and higher. It sounds more like theology at the yes. scientific level. Mm -hmm. And I say that because we don't escape not understanding how it all fits together. Even if you're an atheist who, you know, I only believe in science. Um, <laughs> it, you can't escape that we don't have full access to understanding how everything fits together. Mm -hmm. And so for the believer, I think we would say it's, there are apparent or seeming paradox. Uh, and we want to do a deep dive into the text to make sure we're actually understanding it as fully as possible. Mm -hmm. Then there comes a point where we say, from our perspective as created beings at this moment, we don't see it all fits together. Yeah. But the revelation of God is authoritative and even more so than our scientific experimentation. Yeah. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. Right? So there's kind of two concepts here. One is, is God comprehensible? What's the answer to that question? No, because you, you can't comprehend, like you can't have an entire understanding of it. But is he knowable? He is, because he told us. So part of theology is just, what do we know about God? What can we know about God? But it's, but this comprehensibility, you know, a lot of times you keep you ask questions and ask questions, you go deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, at some point in time, you, you hit the comprehensibility wall. Right? The secret things belong to the Lord. And that's okay. Yeah, and the great thing is we're not saved by our knowledge of God, are we? Right? We're saved by faith in Him, right? And so you may, you know, a child can be saved, a college professor can be saved, right? You're not saved by the knowledge of God. On, on the deep level, you know, obviously there is some you have to believe in Christ, but... Um, yeah, so that's, so, so it's good that we're taking this class, but I think we have to keep all of these disciplines in perspective, and they are really helpful, and my method here, right, is you won't find too many creeds quoted in my study, 
right? God bless the creeds. You can even say that this Bible study is my creed. We have our doctrinal statement, which is our creed, right? God bless the creeds. But the real authority is the biblical text. And if somebody can't show you where something is in the Bible, or they give you a long lecture on creeds and systematics, and then they show you the text, there's something off with that method. Does that make sense? Now, if they're going to say, well, this is primarily reason with a little bit of scripture, and they're going to be like, this is what I think, I think that, I think that is helpful. You know what I'm saying? This is the way it could be. Like, what's heaven going to be like? Right? One of my favorite books is Randy Alcorn's Heaven. A lot of reasoning, a lot of imagination, a lot of text, but in the end he's like, I think, I think this is what it's going to be. And, it's, and when you look at these, his conclusions, they kind of they fit in here. So there's kind of a, a theological imagination that's allowed, right? Yeah. Okay, maybe this is more like a dinner table conversation between you and I. Okay. But, um, With Joshua present, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was just thinking about some of the conversation we had earlier this week, uh, surprised by the emphasis um, in two different theological spheres mm-hmm. that we talked about, where there's suddenly like this, like just thinking about the, 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 the creeds that were read mm-hmm. that, that we heard earlier this week, which was like, I, I haven't seen it present Mm-hmm. in that so heavily yeah. within the EFCA and then within the other sphere that we were talking about where all of a sudden like why so many creeds yeah um and I I do wonder if the conversation I've been I've been hearing is like there's a move away from the like the common teachings of of masculinity femininity um of marriage what marriage is mm-hmm. of what like and so I think there can be comfort in saying, like, no, like, we can't, like, I, there's questioning, like, of scripture in and of itself. Like, mm-hmm. and so one of the ways that we say, actually, we, we, we I mean, within Christians or Christians saying, you're approaching scripture the wrong way. Like, you can actually look at these texts that seem to clearly deny condemnation of homosexuality mm-hmm. because you're 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 approaching scripture the wrong way and we're saying no like how can it be that all like all of christian history yeah. is is has viewed it in the way that we yeah. believe scripture is that clearly saying yeah. it yeah. and so i think i do wonder if that's if there's a kind of a grasping for creeds in a way that is su- surprising yeah, I think that's why historical theology is helpful. Yeah. Right? It, it kind of shows that this is what, this has been the common understanding. And the reason why, and we can look skeptically on people who say otherwise, as this is a product of modern thought. Uh-huh. This is modern reasoning, not true yeah. reasoning. Uh-huh. Yeah, so a lot of these things kind of, like a lot of this just kind of helps you see where people are going wrong. And so I think the biggest benefit of systematic theology is it keeps people faithful. And I think there is something about 
thinking deeply about the things above, thinking deeply about God, thinking deeply about salvation, understanding how it all works, helps you to defend the faith and be confident in the faith. <coughs> and um, all that stuff it, it is wonderful, right? But it has to have, you have to have the right approach with it, okay? So I know I was going to teach on bibliology today, but then I've had some thoughts about this, so all of this was kind of like spewed out from some of my reflections of this week. So hopefully this was helpful for you. But we'll start bibliology and the doctrine of the Bible next week. So hopefully you guys weren't too bored by this. This was something Let me pray. Well, Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity to study theology, and I pray that you'll just help us to have a sound, robust theology that has a, has a high view, high and true view of you. We thank you for your revelation and how we can read it and understand your word spoken to us. In Christ's name, amen.